God, I thought you were just. How could this have happened? I didn't do anything wrong. Why is this happening to me? I thought God was supposed to reward good people and punish bad people. God, if you're good, why am I suffering like this? Good morning. How are you? Good. I want to begin by reminding you that we have a reading plan as we go through the book of Job. What I've done is I've segmented it out according to what we're going to be studying the next week. So either like this, for this past week, we're, we're doing about five or six verses a day. I've done it in six-day increments. So next week we're doing chapters 3 through 14. So there's about two chapters a day if you can read it. I would really encourage you to do that. It's always good that you yourself have read what we're going to go through. We're going through this book rather rapidly. We're doing it in segments. So I hope maybe you can join me and us in reading that before you come uh, over six days. And then come and, and I will be sharing some of the things the Lord's put on my heart for us. Now, one of the things that have been going on for me personally is that I've been spending every day for the last month with Job. And I am looking forward to, to meeting Job in heaven. He is a man of incredible character. And as I spend more time with him and just go through it, I, I'm, I'm gleaning so many things as far as my own walk with the Lord, as we do from the Bible. And I'm hoping that as we go through this study that what the outcome of that is, is what it was for Job. That there's a deepening of our faith in who God is. And that's the ultimate desire that God has in our lives, is that we would love him and trust him more and more. And suffering that we're going to be talking about, life is complex. The book of Job is complex. But you add suffering and the complexities multiply. And so as we're looking at this whole thing of when good people suffer, it's amazing that God is so good at what he does. And he knows exactly what he's doing. And so we're going to look at these different chapters, these different segments in going through Job. And my desire is the Holy Spirit will fill our hearts with a greater and greater faith in God. Ultimately, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Now, how many of you have ever heard, ever heard of the Bible Project? Okay, not a lot of you. I'm going I'm to introduce you to this ministry. It's called the Bible Project. They put together these animations for just, I, I don't know if they've done all the books at this point, but a lot of the books of the Bible, and they'll give you sort of a synopsis of the book, and it's just incredibly creative, and it's really good. So I want to begin our study in Job with this, it's about a, uh, a seven-minute video capturing the book of Job. They have other ones that you can go and look at, but this is the one, it's called The Bible Project. So let's watch that, and then we'll get into it. There are three books in the Bible known as the wisdom literature, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. The first, Proverbs, showed us that God is wise and just. Yeah, we learned that God has ordered the world so that it's fair. The righteous are rewarded, the wicked are punished. In other words, you get what you deserve. But then we meet Ecclesiastes, who observes, well, people don't always get what they deserve. Uh, yeah, he said the world isn't always fair, that life is unpredictable and hard to comprehend, just like smoke. And this makes you wonder, okay, well, is God wise and just? Exactly. And so it's that question that is being explored in the final book of wisdom, Job. All right, let's dive in. 
So Job begins with a strange story that takes place up in the heavens, which are described something like a heavenly command center. So God is there with these angelic creatures called the sons of God, and they're all there reporting for duty. And God points out this guy Job, his servant, showing how righteous and good he is. And then one of these angelic creatures approaches. He's referred to in Hebrew as the Satan. The Satan? Who is this? Well, this word is actually a title, which literally means the one who is opposed. So out of this whole crew, he is the one questioning how God is running the world. And he proposes that Job might not actually love God, that he's only a good person because God rewards him. If God were to take away all of the good things he gave to Job, then we would see his true colors. So he thinks Job is just working the system? That's exactly right. Maybe he's obeying just to get what he wants. So God agrees to this experiment and allows the Satan to inflict suffering on Job. And Job loses everyone and everything that he cares about. It is devastating. And remember, he deserves none of this. God himself said so. The remarkable thing is that in the midst of all this suffering, Job still praises God. At least for chapters one and two. But then in chapter three, we find out how he's really feeling inside. He unleashes this poem that reveals his devastation. It's a long, elaborate curse on the day that he was born. After this, some of Job's friends come to visit him to offer their help. And all of them are like, Job, you must have done something horribly wrong to deserve this. After all, we know God is just, and we know the world is ordered by God's justice and fairness, so you must be getting what you deserve. And for the next 34 chapters, the friends and Job go back and forth in very dense Hebrew poetry. His friends keep speculating about why God might have sent such suffering, and they even start making up lists of hypothetical sins that Job must have committed. But after each accusation, Job defends his innocence. And Job is innocent. He is. He's also on an emotional roller coaster. At some moments, he's very confident that God is still wise and just. Yeah, in other moments, he's doubting God's goodness. He even comes to accuse God of being reckless, unfair, and corrupt. So by the end of the dialogue, Job demands that God come and explain himself in person, and God does so. He comes in the form of a great storm cloud. Now, God doesn't give Job a direct answer. He doesn't tell Job about the conversation with the Satan. Yeah, he does something very different. He takes Job on a virtual tour of the universe. He shows Job how grand the world is, and he asks him if he's even capable of running it or understanding it just for a day. He shows Job how much detail there is in the world, things that we might see every day but really don't understand at all. But God does. He knows it all intimately. He pays attention to the beauty and operations of the universe in ways that we haven't even imagined and in places that we will never see. Then to conclude, God shows Job two wondrous beasts and brags about how great they are. Yeah, they are dangerous. I mean, they would kill you without even thinking about it. And God says they're not evil. They're actually a part of his good world. And then that's it. That's God's whole defense. It's kind of weird. I mean, what was this all about? It seems to be this. From Job's point of view, it looks like God is not 
just. But God's perspective is infinitely bigger. He's dynamically interacting with the whole universe of complexity when he makes decisions. And this is what God calls his wisdom. So Job asking God to defend himself is actually kind of absurd. He couldn't comprehend this kind of complexity even if he wanted to. So where does this leave us? Well, it leaves Job in a place of humility. He never learned why he suffered, and yet he's able to live in peace and in the fear of the Lord. But that's not where the book ends, because after this, God restores to Job double everything he had lost. And this, again, is surprising. I mean, is this a reward? Is God saying, congratulations, Job, you passed this elaborate test? No. I mean, the whole book just made the point that Job losing everything was not a punishment. And so now getting it back isn't a reward. So why does he get it back? Well, apparently, God, in his wisdom, decided to give Job a gift. We don't know why. But what we do know is that Job is now the kind of person who, no matter what comes, good or bad, he can trust God's wisdom. Pretty good, huh? So that's capturing the whole book. There's another one you might go online and watch, which uh, is also excellent. So here's what, what, they, what we just heard a little bit. What was this all about? It seems to be this. From Job's point of view, it looks like God is not just. Justice is a big uh, theme of the book. But God's perspective is infinitely bigger. He's dynamically interacting with the whole universe of complexity when he makes decisions. And this is what God calls his wisdom. Job couldn't comprehend this, couldn't comprehend this kind of complexity even if he wanted to. And so we have this whole, what I, a big question mark that we might uh, theme the book of Job with. So where does this leave us when life goes bad is, a, is the question that we're gonna talk about this morning. So there are two things I wanna share with you in these two, first two chapters. One is an introduction to Job's suffering, and secondly, an invitation in our suffering. So first, the introduction to Job's suffering. We begin this eight-part series by, I want to let the narrative itself be our introduction to this fascinating man named Job. The drama begins, let me give you a little outline for taking notes. The drama begins with a prologue, chapters one and two. It follows with this three cycles of dialogue and debate in chapters 3 through 27. So you have a prologue and then the dialogues. Third, that's followed by three monologues. So you have one that's Job in chapters 28 through 31. A second monologue by this young man named Elihu in chapters 32 through 37. And then the final and third monologue is from God himself. God always gets the last word, and that's right. Finally, so you have a prologue, a dialogue, then you have monologues, and then you have the epilogue, which is chapter 42. So chapters 1 and 2 this morning set the stage for everything that follows. So it's an introduction to Job's suffering. So this prologue gives us the divine perspective that Job did not see. We are privileged to go backstage in this drama and there witness God's purposes in exposing Satan for who he is, but then also demonstrating and proving Job for who God knew him to be, a man who would not curse him. The dialogues and debate 
move us to the human perspective. Here's where we find so many unanswerable questions, and with those, it furthers the combative nature of trying to prove our points. That's the human perspective. That's the dialogues and debates. Then we move to the, to the monologues, and these monologues exalt God. So in these, he is seen as the sovereign creator and sustainer of all things, who is not Job's enemy, but rather he is the all-powerful advocate and friend. And then we get to the final epilogue that reveals God. So you have the divine perspective, you have the human perspective, you have God exalted, the exalted God, who he really is. And then you have the revelation of God. And in, in, the, in the prologue, God reveals himself embracing a suffering, broken human being. I love it. God revealed is embracing a suffering human being. He's wrapping his healing and gracious arms around Job, who had heard of him with his ears, but now sees him with his eyes, uh, 42.5, and the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. That's from James. We'll see that in another minute. So as we look at the book, the whole book, it points us again to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is divine perspective. Jesus is human perspective. Jesus is God exalted, and Jesus is God revealed. And so as we go through the book of Job, I pray and ask the Holy Spirit to show us Jesus again. We need just to see him in all these things that we go through, and particularly when life goes bad. So in chapter 1, let's begin. I hope you have your Bibles. If you'd open them to Job 1, if you have your, your devices, I hope you'll go with me. And let's go through this passage, these two chapters. There was a man in the land of Uz. Whenever I read that, I think of the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also, his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all people of the east. And his sons would go and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day, and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And so it was, when the days of feasting had run their course, that Job would send and sanctify them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all for each one. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. So Job had a great life. In fact, things were really, really good. He was a man of remarkable character. He was a God-fearing, humble, and honest man who loved his family, deeply spiritual, a man of prayer. He was a praying father and husband. He was the wealthiest and most highly respected leader in all the land. But here's the deal. Job had a great life. Things were great, but not for long. And so as we move now into this narrative, suddenly, seemingly out of nowhere, things get really, really bad for Job. 
Let's continue, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, around all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But now, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay, do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Again, chapters 1 and 2 are setting the stage for everything that follows. And what follows is triggered by what's happening in this heavenly court place. And so here, God and Satan are having this conversation that neither Job nor his four friends ever knew about. And we're not told they ever did know about it, that God ever told them this is all going on. But it's setting the stage for what happens on earth. So here are four things about Satan. First of all, Satan has current access before the Lord. Secondly, Satan is a cunning analyzer of human beings. The word have you considered is a military term. It means to scrutinize, to find weakness. Have you considered, have you scrutinized my servant Job to find weakness? Now, God here is bringing Job before this, this man Job and saying, have you scrutinized him? Know this, Satan is a cunning analyzer of human beings, but secondly, Satan is a calculating accuser of God's servants. He's the accuser of the brethren. So here, he's calling into question Job's motives as to why he was living a pious life. Job only serves you because of what he gets from you in return. That's why he's serving you. What he gets out of the deal is the only reason. In other words, it's all selfishly motivated. All his godly living he does for himself, not you, God. He serves you because it's profitable for him to do so. Satan not only is a, has current access, he's a cunning analyzer of human beings. He's a calculating accuser of God's servants, but he is also confined always to only what God allows him to do. That's Satan. So Satan said to God, stretch out your hand. God replies, all that he has now is in your power, only do not let your hand touch his person. So, G so Satan is not the opposite of God. Satan can do nothing without God's permission. We must keep that in mind as we consider these things of our lives all in totality, but especially in suffering. God replies all he has. So when life goes bad, we must not be ignorant of the devil's devices. We may not be able to see physically the demonic realm, but know this, it is as real as the world in which we live and move and have our being. We have an adversary, and he's not God. He's Satan. God is our advocate. He is for us, not against us. If you question that, we just need to look to the cross. Where God sent Jesus the righteous 
to be an advocate with the Father for us. We have the best attorney ever. He wins all of his cases when it comes to those who come to him. So Jesus came and died to become our advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, 1 John chapter 2. So, let's continue, verse 13. Now, there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. When the Sabaeans raided them and took them away, indeed, they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels and took them away, yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the earth, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Job never saw it coming. Nor could he have seen it coming. And the most devastating, difficult things are when things happen in great suffering and we never saw them coming. But I believe most of the time that's exactly what happens. As far as we know, God never let Job know what happened. And so Satan here is given permission by God to attack Job indirectly by human instruments. He robs Job of all his fortune by inciting two of these marauding, plundering inhabitants of the land to attack and kill Job's servants and steal his, all of his livestock, all of his wealth. Those are oxen, donkeys, and camels. He also, not only human instruments, by, by natural forces, he summons these forces of nature, and the first thing, they consume all of Job's sheep and shepherds in fire. Then... He kills Job's children by sending a violent windstorm, some kind of a tornado. So Satan is given permission. He attacks Job indirectly using human instruments and natural forces. Let's continue. Then Job arose. I mean, it just, it's got to break your heart. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell to the ground and worshipped. He worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, in all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. It's got to be the humbling of our hearts to see such a response to difficult, horrendous suffering for Job, loss. So his response is deeply personal, and considering all of these things, it's incredible. He mourns, of course. He worships trusting God without knowing or without seeing why, why? He receives this 
as from the hand of God himself. That God allowed these things. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all these things, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. He responds with a calm acceptance of these adversities as the will of God for his life. But his troubles are still not over. Job chapter 2. And there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. And what is he doing? He's coming to rob, kill, and destroy. As Jesus said. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man? One who fears God and shuns evil? And still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. So Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. Don't kill him. So Satan is a calculating accuser of God's servants. He's saying, you touch him personally, you touch him physically, he will curse you to your face. You take away his health, you see what he's saying is the previous things weren't severe enough. Are you kidding me? Satan is confined always to only what God allows him to do. And so Satan said to God, stretch out your hand. God replies, behold, he is in your hand, but... Spare his life. And so we continue. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took for himself a potsherd, that's a piece of broken pottery, which, with which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of ashes. He's on the, 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 the scrap heap. Again, Job never knew what hit him. This time, Satan is given permission by God to attack him directly. Note, it was not God who did it. It was Satan with the permission of God. Now, it was absolutely horrible. Some think it was some form of leprosy. Some others, cancer. Some believe elephantitis. But whatever it was, it was absolutely horrible. Let me give you the symptoms of what happened from the book of Job. Itching and open sores. Grotesque swelling and disfigurement. Feeling of terror and sleeplessness. Maggots breeding in running ulcers. Nightmares and depression. Weepy eyes and failing vision. Foul, stinky breath. Rotting teeth and emaciated body where the bones were sticking out that were never seen before. His bone loss continued. There was a blackening and falling off of his skin. Horrible. And get this, it went on for months. Verse 9, then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? 
curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God? And shall we not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, Job's wife's response to it is understandable. She also has lost everything. And now she's watching her husband tormented with severe and painful afflictions. So before we criticize her too quickly, there's a lot of jokes made about Job's wife and her response. Before we criticize her too quickly, let me ask you a question. How would you respond? As I ask myself, how would I respond to someone I love and seeing this happen? To my family being destroyed, my wealth ripped out of my hands in a day. How would I respond? Again, his amazing response, Job, at this juncture, he calmly accepts these adversities as from the hand of God. My question in this is, could any suffering be more undeserved? Afflictions financially, emotionally, physically, spiritually, as bad as they can get, absolutely defy human explanation. Why Job? Why does this happen to Job? Of all people. Verse 11. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, each one came from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shumite, Zophar the Namathite. We'll pick these up next week. For they had made an appointment together to come and mourn with him and to comfort him. And when they raised their eyes from afar... And did not recognize him. They lifted their voices and wept. And each one tore his robe and sprinkled dust on his head toward heaven. They, they joined Job in his agony. So they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his grief was very great. We know very little about these three good friends. But here's what we do know. They were loyal friends. They were good friends of Job's. They got together, made the trek to go see him. They were faithful, caring friends who wanted to be with him, wanted to mourn with him, wanted to comfort him in his grief. They were good friends. They were shocked when they saw the disfigurement. And I have, that's happened to me as it probably has you. You hear of something happening to someone and, you go, and you're shocked to look at them. They look nothing like what you know them as. And they're shocked at that. And it caused them to be completely broken because of what happened to Job. Those are good friends. They were sensitive knowing that nothing they could say would help Job at this point in his suffering. So in those agonizing nights of terror, they just wanted to know Job to know they're there. They're with him. Genuine empathy understands the power of silence. A wise man is one who thinks twice before saying nothing. And Job's friends knew that. So as this season of Job's tremendous suffering progressed, these three good friends of Job became, in Job's own words, miserable comforters. And what was going on in the dialogue, the human perspective. You see, loyal friendships will be tested when we're in suffering. Faithful and caring friendships will be tested in seasons of suffering. Empathy and understanding will be tested 
in times of great suffering. Every relationship that you have and I have, when seasons of difficulty and seasons of suffering come along, those friendships are tested. But Job, in being tested by God, came forth as gold. I believe that when friends enter into these things with each other, it comes out on the other end like gold. That's what friendships do. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. So the second thing is an invitation in our suffering. The book of Job is an invitation to trust God's wisdom in your suffering. I'm going to repeat that often. The whole question, the book of Job is an invitation to trust God's wisdom in your suffering. So I counted 309 questions in the book of Job in 42 chapters. As we engage in this unfolding drama for ourselves, it will leave us with more questions than answers from the human perspective. I believe the Holy Spirit intentionally inspired it to be just that. So that being said, where does this leave us when life goes bad? With just a bunch of questions? Well, hopefully... It leaves us where it left Job. You see, he was left in a place of great humility. He never learned why he suffered, and yet he learned to live in peace and in the fear of the Lord in his suffering. There are many unanswered questions about the book itself. No one knows who wrote the book, when it was written, when its events occurred, or where Job lived. Now, the language, there are many things of the author and the date that I could talk. I'll let you research that. But the language of the book of Job, there are more rare words that occur only, and others that occur only once in the book of Job. So it's a tremendously difficult book to translate. However, as as Daniel Webster said, quote, the book of Job, taken as a mere work of literary genius is one of the most wonderful production of any age or of any language, unquote. And I say, of course, it's the word of God. And God has given to us the best, his voice to us in the book. So this is God speaking to us. Know this, it is historically true. Job is a real person. So Job is mentioned alongside Noah and Daniel in the book of Ezekiel. Job is quoted by James as an example of suffering, as we looked at. Paul quotes Job in two of his letters. He was a real person, and he still is. So the general theme, then, of this book, as we look at an invitation in our suffering, is wisdom teaching about God and human human suffering. Suffering is universal. Everyone suffers. It might be physical, psychological, it might be material, it might be emotional, it might be intellectual, whatever it is, it's universal. We all suffer. It's part of the the fallen world in which we live. Suffering is also unique. Everyone suffers differently. There are different reasons, there are different degrees, and and because for many of us there's different circumstances, we all suffer, but we all suffer uniquely. That's why the book applies to every and each one of us. So another question, as we're looking at an invitation. Is there a moral order of the world, and what are the principles on which it is governed? In other words, first of all, is God just? Now, here's a a question that came from the Zondervan NIV Study Bible, if you have that. Quote, if God is almighty, 
in the book of Job, notes, if God is almighty and holds the worlds in his hands and is truly good, how can he allow such an outrage, unquote? That's the question. Some possible answers. God is not almighty after all. God is not always just. In other words, God has a mean streak. Humans may just be innocent. Now, the problem with that is I continue with the quote. In ancient Israel, however, it was indisputable that God is almighty, that God is perfectly just, and that no human is pure in his sight. These three assumptions were also the fundamental to the theology of Job and his friends. We'll see that as they're debating. Their conclusion is this. Every person's suffering is indicative of the measure of their guilt in the eyes of God, unquote. So the question then comes, does God govern his universe with strict justice? In other words, is there any rule whereby goodness is rewarded and wickedness is punished? Or is good always rewarded? Is evil always punished? And if not, then when are they? Is it just random? How does this thing work? So the foremost question that our suffering and that suffering provokes is why? Why is this happening? And when it gets personal, it's even more difficult. Why me? Why is this happening to me? What did I do to deserve this? The nagging difficult is that infinite human beings cannot give a meaningful analysis. That's the difficulty. God's ways are not our ways, as he pointed out to Job, and we'll see that. The difficulty in our suffering is further compounded by the fact that Job, in his suffering, was innocent by God's own evaluation that he boasted to Satan about. But then he turns right around and gives permission to Satan to destroy Job by destroying every good thing in his life. By God's permission. His family, his health, his prosperity, his reputation, you name it, Satan destroyed it. So pray tell, how does that work? How does that work? And so when we see Job agonizing through his suffering... The question that echoes in the background of our own suffering, resigned to the fact that we can't get the answer why, it turns now to the question, what am I to do when I suffer? In what way am I supposed to respond in suffering? How should the righteous suffer? And those are the questions, that's why we called it, when good people suffer. Not why, because it doesn't answer that. So it's an invitation to trust God's wisdom in your suffering. For Job, there were three responses throughout the book. This season of great suffering thrust upon him. We see three Jobs, if you will. Three responses. In chapters 1 and 2, we get patient Job. The patient Job. This blameless and upright man who feared God and shunned evil is in calm acceptance of this adversity as for him by the will of God. 
And so he calmly accepted. Patient. In fact, Job maintained his fidelity to God even under excruciating pressure and weight. That whole word patience means to bear up under pressure, to bear up under weight. You talk about pressure, you talk about weight. Job had all of it heaped upon him by the devil. Now, I find it interesting that James, in quoting this, says this. James 5, 10 and 11. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You've heard the perseverance of Job and see the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Now, the only thing about this thing in James is he's giving us the end. He gives us sort of the beginning, but he doesn't give us 39 chapters of Job trying to work through it. So we get that the Lord is merciful. But James here, is, it's worth understanding that what we are understanding as far as our suffering is we're in chapters where we're trying to figure it out. But the end intended by the Lord is he's very compassionate and merciful. So you see here Job patient, but now in chapters 3 through 41, you see impatient Job. He gets impatient with this whole thing. This godly man agonizing physical pain, mental torment, emotional torment. He seeks now to suppress this growing aggression towards God for doing it to him. Very acceptable response. He's in conflict with his friends. He's feeling more and more isolated from God to know with, with no thanks to his friends. He sees God as persecuting him. He vents his anger. He vents bitterness. He raises his listless fist to God and says, you need to explain to me. You need to come down here and talk to me, God. What's going on? He's very, becoming more and more impatient in his suffering. But in all this, Job spoke what was right of God. We find that God saying that in chapter 42. And though he came close, he never cursed God. Impatient. You have the patient Job, the impatient Job. But then in chapter 4, 42, you have the penitent Job. This is fantastic. That Job, all the way along, he held God ultimately responsible for his suffering. And by that, all the way along, he directed himself towards God. In so doing, in that all of that complicated stuff, God finally does show up in the whirlwind. Job had an impersonal encounter with God in which he found peace of mind, rest for his soul, and a gracious response from the living God. In chapter 42, he had no, as we would see it, as far as repentance from sin, God said he's spoken all that was right. His repentance was that he realized God is so much greater than he realized. And he's humbled before God and repents in dust and ash, said, I heard you with my ears, but now I see you. And the depths of understanding God in that much deeper way brought him to a place of repenting in thinking and limiting God to who he thought he was. And that is the greatest experience in all of life that comes out of much suffering. We realize who God is in a much deeper way and it, beca- it, it washes over us as this repentance. Oh, oh, oh. So we have, we have the patient Job. 
We have the impatient Job, and we have the penitent Job. And my friends, this is the full spectrum of appropriate human response in suffering. We're invited into this, into this, this encounter with God. And as Christians, we are so thankful that we have a good shepherd who walks us through the valley of the shadow of death. Job is an invitation to trust God's wisdom in your suffering. As one commentator put it, quote, man simply cannot tie all the loose ends of the Lord's purposes together. In suffering, we must learn to trust God no matter what the circumstances. So let me give you the outline of our studies. Trust God's wisdom when life goes bad this morning. Trust God's wisdom when life hurts really bad. Trust God's wisdom when you feel all alone. Trust God's wisdom when life is not fair. Trust God's wisdom when you don't know what to do. Trust God's wisdom when people just don't get it. Trust God's wisdom, listen, he will show up. Trust God's wisdom, he will restore you. He will do that. David McKenna in his commentary said, quote, quote, Wrote, quote, why do the wicked prosper and the innocent suffer in an orderly universe created by a just God? This is the question upon which scholars and skeptics stumble in their search for faith. The book of Job provides no ready answers to either the cosmic question or the sufferer's anguish. Only a perspective is given. The perspective of faith in which the question of why gives way to the answer who, unquote. Because there's no direct answer to Job's question, why? The answer remains just out of reach until faith takes hold. Job's faith through suffering opens his eyes to see what God's doing in the world and what he's doing and wants to do with those who trust him. His suffering allows God to be an encouragement in his own walk with him. The book of Job takes us on a journey of faith that is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. For the Christian, we see Jesus, who is the hope of our ultimate destiny and the strength for the journey until we arrive. It's Jesus. So Dave McKenna goes on, quote, when we look on the book of Job from the perspective of Jesus Christ, every line leans forward into the promise of the incarnation and our resurrection. Jesus said, behold, I have come. In the volume of the book is written of me to do your will, O God. It's an invitation to trust Jesus with everything that's going on in your life. See, Jesus is divine perspective. Jesus is human perspective. Jesus is God exalted. Jesus is God revealed. And so as I look at the book of Job to close, he was the most upright man on the earth, suffers the most of anyone on earth. Could any suffering be more undeserved? You see, it defies human explanation. Why Job? But then we turn and we say, why Jesus? Why Jesus? Why would he endure such hostility from sinners against himself? It defies human explanation. It's God. 
God said to Satan about Job, you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. And then we turn to Jesus and we, refer, we realize he suffered without cause. They hated him without cause. They crucified him without cause. Why? There's only one explanation. It's God. Jesus battled Satan all the way along. He defeated him completely, decisively, fully, and permanently on the cross. The final blow, he triumphed over Satan, disarmed him completely on the cross. Trembling with pain, Job cried out, 121, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. Jesus was crucified naked on the cross. Job was so disfigured by his suffering that his friends didn't even recognize him. We read in Isaiah that Jesus was so disfigured from the horrendous, torturous crucifixion, he couldn't be recognized as a human being. Why? Why? There's only one. It's God. It's God. Eliphaz taunted Job to cry out to God for help. And they said to Christ, he trusts in God. Let him cry out to him. Job cried out. They gape at me with their mouth. They strike me reproachfully on the cheek. They gather together against me. And then we read in Psalm 22, prophetic of Jesus. They gape at me with their mouth like a raging and roaring lion. Why? Why would Jesus do that? Because it's God. Job bemoaned, why do you hide your face and regard me as your enemy to God? And Jesus from the cross cried out, what? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why, why? The only one answer is God. Job's three good friends failed him. All of Jesus' friends forsook him. Job cried out for a mediator who could place his hand on him and God. Jesus is our mediator who has made for us a new covenant whereby we can know God. He mediated the whole thing. Why? Why? There's only one answer. It's God. It's God. Job was raised up from his suffering and interceded for his friends. Jesus was risen from the dead and now sits at the right hand as our intercessor before God. Both Job and Jesus suffered according to the will of God. And Jesus cried out, not my will, but your will be done. Why? Why? Because it's God. Job said, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. And John wrote this. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, your word. And I think, just thinking through some of these passages where on the cross, on the cross, there my Savior died for me. Why? We can't explain it, Lord, except that you are love. And you so love the world that you gave your only begotten son that whoever believes in Jesus will not perish but have everlasting life. That you didn't send him to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved, that we might be saved. And so we bow in humble 
worship and adoration for you and what you've done for us. And as our heads are bowed and we're praying, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus yet, life is hard, but without Jesus, it becomes impossible. You can't deal with your guilt. You don't know what to do about the things that are going on in your life. You've got an emptiness in your soul that you don't know what to do with. You've got questions and questions and questions. And may I say this morning that your first and greatest need that is the foundation of every other thing that you're wrestling through is to be in relationship with God through Jesus Christ. He came and died for your sin that separates you from God. And so in this, what I call the Jesus call, we're not calling you to the front or to any other. We're calling you to Jesus. And Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. In other words, you have to, have to make a choice today. God has provided all that, he, that you need to come and be forgiven, cleansed, wash away your whole past life, and be born again, a whole new life where everything begins anew because now you're in relationship with God and indeed all things will be new. So if that's you, and you haven't yet received Christ, you haven't said yes to Jesus yet, you don't know what's going to happen when you die. You've got those questions also, which are very important questions to get an answer to. Jesus is the answer. God provided his son to give you an, a, a reservation in heaven that is sure and steadfast through your repentance, turning from your old life, and turning to God, and putting your faith in Christ. So if that's you, three things I'm going to ask you to do. First, just raise your hand and say, I want to get right with you. I want to say yes to Jesus today. And we're praying. Brothers and sisters, we're praying. Secondly, I'm going to ask you to stand up, as I just said, just to say, yes, I'm going to be obedient to what I know God's calling me, commanded me to do. And then three, walk up to the tables where there's someone there who will pray with you. And there, before God's throne, you can ask Jesus to forgive you, receive him as your Lord and Savior. You'll be given the Holy Spirit, and you'll walk out of here a new creation in Jesus Christ, a new, whole new life. So as we're praying just for another moment, that's you. First, your hand. Just if you raise your hand up so that I can see that. I don't want to miss you. And I want today to say yes to Jesus. I want my life to be in God's hands so that I know what's going to happen when I die. I know my eternal destiny. I can be assured of that. Just raise up your hand. Keep that up just so I don't miss it. We never want to miss an opportunity to see someone else come into the kingdom of God. So would you stand as we sing this last song together and I'll close this.